You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 373, Revelation 7, part 2. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, what's going on? Well, we have had a new development here in Florida. Um, My wife, Drina, has declared war on two ducks in our backyard. The ducks like to land in the pool and do what ducks do. Okay, they they poop in the pool. (laughs) They walk around the sidewalk and poop on the sidewalk. They They eat this. There's nothing in the pool to eat, but they eat the seeds that drop from a bird feeder near the pool. So... It's, it's just, it's funny is this morning, another, it's like been like every morning for a week now. Okay. First thing she does, get out of bed, look, look out the window. Oh, the ducks are here again. <laughs> She's gone. <laughs> Gotta go what, what do you do? Shoot them away? I mean, cause you know, cause she shoot them no, away. No, they leave, I mean, they just you, look at you her gotta, like, lady, this is my pool. You got to sort of get, yeah, they do. You got to sort of get after them. I mean, they won't respond just to yelling, you know, or even barking. You know, the dogs will go out there and bark at them. But if you get the the skimmer after them, then they'll fly away. You know. So we've looked it up, and and the thing that is recommended that uh, you know boats do to keep you know birds off like yachts, you know, from landing on the yachts and stuff like that, and doing the same thing is to get a rubber snake, yeah, and put that by the pool or in the pool. So we're going to try that. And see if that's a duck deterrent. I mean, we've got the owl there for the raccoons. That, that keeps the rat. We haven't had a raccoon show up for a couple of months now. So the owl works for the raccoons, but the ducks could care less. Yeah. So they they need another another predator <laughs> threat. Yeah, snakes are good. I remember my grandparents at their carport. They had a bunch of rubber uh, snakes tied up around their carport. I guess to keep the birds off too. So that that memory just popped in my brain right now when you said that. So. Uh, yeah. That's good. So where are you going? And of course, this? my kids think think Dreen is the villain. Oh, the ducks are so pretty. You know, let the ducks alone. It's like the ducks are pooping in the pool. Okay, so let let's you know get rid of the ducks. You know, so I'm on Dreen's side. Obviously, I, I don't <laughs> want ducks pooping in the pool. But it's it is funny. I have to admit that. Yeah. Did you name the ducks? No, we haven't named them yet. Oh, yeah. that, that that's a good idea. If I bring that up, though, you know, tonight maybe we'll. I'm sure we'll get some candidates. Well, let so. us know where y'all land because. <laughs> yeah, no pun names. intended, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's cute. We'll see if we... the ducks are, are there a week from now. Is, yeah. It, she, she's going to go out and get, get the rubber snake. And I got to tell her, look, don't get a little one. Like, you know, get something five, six feet long so that they don't miss it, you know, and just leave it out there and see if it works. Yeah, doesn't Florida, don't y'all have a ton of. Like uh, wild pythons and whatnot roaming around. Didn't oh, I'm sure that? there's. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm sure there's some. I mean, my uh, the, the kids have seen some, you know, one or two on the trails because by the by the walking trails here, there's there's water. You know, these I don't know if you even call them a creek, but they they flow. There's a lot of ponds around here, so you'll see them every now and then. Yeah. But they, you know, they scatter. Yeah. They're they're not really a threat unless you. Do th- do something stupid like try to chase one down, but uh, yeah, you'll see them every now and then. Yeah, we have a pool too, and uh, only thing we get now and then are frogs and turtles. 
So I'll open the uh, the basket mm-hmm. covers, and you'll just see turtles, yep. baby turtles, in there spinning. And so we tried to <laughs> we we tried to keep them. We made, we actually made a little turtle habitat kind of outside in their backyard yeah. in the attempts to uh, you know raise them and grow them. But uh, these little baby red ear sliders, I think they're called, they keep escaping. And of course, you know I, they're not going back in the pool. I don't know where they're going, but. Uh, they're disappearing on yeah. us, but uh, we've had a couple of frogs and trying to catch a frog. Have you ever seen a frog swim underwater? You know, I mean, it's kind of, it's amazing how good under swimmer there. Yeah, but I'm trying to catch them with, with, with their net and their little frog legs are kind of <laughs> freaky the way they swim, you know, and it's just, I don't know, something about <laughs> trying to catch a frog as it's swimming full speed is kind of weird. Well, I, if, if this doesn't work, I don't know what we're going to do. I, you know, I'll suggest graduating to a little gator, maybe a little one or two foot. <laughs> Just kidding. Is they're going to move in the pool? Too. <laughs> little pet gator. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, maybe if you I, would, I don't know. Maybe you can get a little uh, statue, like a little gnome gator or something. Maybe that'll <laughs> keep the ducks out. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll try the gnome. Okay. Yeah. There you just, go. Just the n- regular gnome. I, I I don't know that that would work, but yeah. yep. So that's the latest. We have a duck that's problem. Good stuff. That's good stuff. I don't know how we switch gears into the uh, end times. Uh, with that, but uh, <laughs> part two of chapter seven, we we do not have one hundred and forty four thousand ducks. How's yeah, that? There, yeah. there we go. Have you ever seen those deals? If if, if you would, uh, what would you rather fight? Like one hundred and forty four uh, ducks? Oh, I can't. What, what is that? How's that go? Or like one big? Or would you rather fight one human sized duck? Or would you rather fight like one hundred and forty four <laughs> little ducks? What would you rather fight? Yeah, I'll take the human-sized duck. Oh, you, you only got to use one bullet on it. Okay. You know? Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I didn't say weapons were allowed, but okay, I see what you did there. Well. Yeah. You had to go hand-to-hand. Hand-to-wing, <laughs> hand, hand to okay. Yeah. Hand-to-beat. That's still my choice. Okay, okay, good. So you're The other one's too labor-intensive, you know, it's just, too, there's too much work there. No. Well, Mike, I'm going to leave it up to you to transition here because it's all you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, okay, we'll we'll just do it the simple way. We're we are back in Revelation seven. This is part two, uh, and we are talking about the hundred forty four thousand. Um, this time, you know, we, we sort of just went through the, the the passage last time, talked about different features of it, you know, the, the number and and whatnot, and you know, just sort of different lines and things that, that, that pop up as you read through, especially, you know, the, the tribal arrangement, you know, the old Testament connections back to, to this sort of thing, the number, you know, the census thing and the, the, and the tribes and whatnot, whether they're protected or not. We, we sort of telegraphed that when we get to the point about, you know, the plagues being unleashed, that there, that there, there's an allusion here in, in this chapter to that. And then that of course factors into the, issue with the plagues of Egypt and were the Israelites protected and if they were the 144,000 protected. So we did we did some of that in part 1. And we reserved part 2 sort of for you know different different topical approaches to this. And what we talked about last time was I, I alluded to the fact that when we get to part 2 we're going to talk about a possible connection with the book of the watchers. That's you know first 36 chapters of the book of Enoch. And also the Antichrist from Dan tradition. And by the end of, of going through those two things, we actually will sort of also pick up 
a little bit of, you know, re- related to how this, this chapter is used or, or, or maybe shouldn't be used or, or something like that in regard to certain points of end times schemes or scenarios that, that people will be familiar with uh, today. So I want to get into the Book of Watchers connection first. We're just going to take, you know, that that and then the Antichrist from Dan idea and then sort of mop up you know, chapter seven in this episode. And if you've read Reversing Hermon, uh, my book, there there's going to be some of this content in that book. But we're we're going to say a few more things about uh this issue, this this possible connection. Give you a little more detail here than I than I do in the book. And we'll do the same thing with the Antichrist from Dan tradition. And when I get to the Antichrist from Dan tradition, I'm going to have to be a little bit careful because, believe it or not, this is this is a trajectory in my third novel. So I've, I've got to be a little cagey uh, with that. But we'll step around that when we get to it here. So Book of the Watchers connection, Revelation 7, 1 through 8, of course, is the 144,000. And then there's another passage in which the 144,000 are mentioned. And this is the, the, the passage where there might be, again, some scholars argue for a possible connection back to the Book of the Watchers idea, or at least, you know, more broadly, the, the events of Genesis 6, okay? So in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, that's the second passage, we read this. I'm going to read the first five verses. Again, this is ESV. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So that's Revelation 14, 1 through 5. You see already, you know, in verse, the very first verse there, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb with him, 144,000 who had his name, the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So there, there we have the bearing the name concept, which should be familiar to this audience, you know, through, you know, Carmen Imes' work. And we've had her on the podcast, and we've talked about this before, that how this relates to imaging God and the, these two concepts go together. Carmen's focus, of course, is Old Testament material. But, you know, she drifts into the New Testament as well in, in her, her book, uh, Bearing the Name. And this is representation, and, and, and in this, you know, one of the specific Old Testament contexts is the high priest. So right away for a, a Jew listening to this, they're going to associate this language with broadly Israelites bearing the name of Yahweh, and specifically the high priest who, who like literally bore the name on his forehead. Okay, and, and that priestly context is going to be, you know, part of, you know, the, the Part of the approach when it comes to this whole thing, is there a connection to the Book of the Watchers? The key verse, though, is going to be verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, let's just back up a little bit and say, think about the 144,000 as they are cast in this passage. They're in the heavenly Zion, okay, God's throne room. This is a divine council scene, all right. Verse 3, we have another reference to the throne and the cherubim, and, you know, we, we go back, you know, to 
Revelation 7 that follows on the heels of Revelation 4 and 5, you know, pretty closely. And there are their hooks back into Revelation 4 and 5, the divine council scene. So, so we're in the heavenly Zion, God's throne room. We've got the cherubim here, the throne. It's the spiritual realm. Now, this is one reason why the 144,000 of chapter 7 are viewed as a different group. Can remember we talked about this in, in, in part one. But why cannot John have a hundred, you know, have an earthly hundred forty-four thousand who are then in the vision? Remember, this is a vision. Also, before the throne of God, perhaps this is some sort of commissioning scene. You know, we talked about is Revelation seven or Revelation four and five, I should say, is this is the Lamb? Is this a commissioning scene? Is it, is it some other kind of way to look at this enthronement? Or you know, we went through all these different categories, and. In the course of doing that, and then the course of the 144,000 in part one, there was this division about whether Revelation 7 or Revelation 14 are two different groups. The majority of scholarship doesn't hold them as two different groups because this is a vision. There's no reason, there's no necessary reason why the 144,000, you know, earthly can't also be present in heaven and so on and so forth because this is a visionary context where at the, you know, we, 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 we've seen these guys before. Is this, you know, some sort of, flashback, you know, to their commissioning. I mean, who knows? There's any number of ways to argue that they don't have to be distinguished. We're going to set that aside and focus on verses four and five here, because we've already sort of covered, you know, the, this, this other topic. Verses four and five mark them as virgins, specifically male virgins who have, quote, not defiled themselves with women. And then thirdly, they're playing on their harps. They're singing a new song before the throne. So this is a, again, this, this heavenly scene. And then we've got this sort of weird, almost feels like a throwaway line. Like, like what, is the, what is the fact that they're, they haven't defiled themselves with women? What does that have to do with a divine council, a throne room scene, a heavenly, you know, scene in the divine abode and worship? And, you know, what does that have to do with anything? It, it just seems like it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Now, again, that's one of the obvious questions. There are others that go along with this. Because again, the, the passage starts out with this bearing the name concept, which again, a Jew would associate with Israelites bearing the name. And, and let's not forget, Israelites were, dis, were supposed to be, quote unquote, a kingdom of priests. And we've got the high priest who literally bears the name on, on his forehead. So here's, here's a question we could bring to it. Are the 144,000 here portrayed as a heavenly priesthood? And we've actually talked about this before in relationship to the elders and, and that whole discussion of Revelation 4 and 5, we, we talked a little bit about how certain sects of Judaism uh, had this notion of that they were on earth, the mirror image or the mirror, the symbiotic, you know, group that corresponded to the heavenly, you know, the angelic priesthood. Okay, that we, this is known from Qumran, the Shabbat Shirot, and so on and so forth. So this is a legitimate question. You know, are they are they portrayed as a heavenly priesthood? And, and again, one of the one of the reasons you'd ask this question is the bearing the name concept. And also this, you know, male virgin thing. Okay. So let, let's just let's just proceed a little bit. We asked why this specific note? Because, you know, priests, Israelite priests could be married. I mean, there wasn't a, a rule against that. You go back in the Old Testament, you can see that very plainly. Now, last week we talked about how a few scholars, uh, On and Balkum, suggested that the sexual abstinence here was part of a military motif. You know, practicing abstinence, sexual abstinence before going to war, and you'll find that in the Hebrew Bible. But 
if you think about that analogy, well, the warriors there, they weren't virgins. Okay, they might have abstained before going to battle, but they're not virgins. I mean, they're, they're, they're just not. Okay, so that doesn't seem to really work well. I mean, and, you know, you can still argue a military context, at least, you know, part of the context on the basis of tribal arrangements, census, demonic opposition. I mean, you don't need this, this sexual abstinence motif to, to have the, the military flavoring of Revelation 7, the 144,000 be there. You have these other things that, that you can build the same argument out of. The abstinence idea is pretty weak, actually. And again, the virgin idea specifically for some scholars takes them in quite a different direction. Now, there are two scholarly studies on this passage that have argued that this description presents the 144,000 as priestly figures. Again, they're in the presence of God. They occupy sacred space. They're worshiping at the throne. They bear the name, okay? That they're priestly figures who are intended as an oppositional reverse analogy to the sexual defilement of God's other holy ones who at one point occupied sacred space in heaven, but who did defile themselves by sexual engagement with women. And that would be the fallen sons of God of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, or the watchers, as they are known in Second Temple Jewish literature. Now, those two articles are D.C. Olson, and the title is Those Who Have Not Defiled Themselves with Women, colon, subtitle, Revelation 14, 4, and the Book of Enoch. That's from Catholic Biblical Quarterly, volume 59, number 3, 1997, pages 492 to 510. And then the second one is Terrell Manikam. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, and Jan A. Durand. The title here is The 144,000 Undefiled Levites. But it actually has it in the title, this priestly idea. The 144,000 Undefiled Levites of Revelation 14, 1 to 5 and the link to the defiled watchers of first Enoch one through 36. That's the title, long title. And the publication, the journal is, is pretty obscure. In fact, this might be in, you know, in my library of seven or 8,000 journal articles that pertain to this sort of stuff. This might be the only article from this source, the Ecclesiasticos Pharos journal, volume 94, number one, 2012, pages 123 to 136. Now I put both of these, uh, in the protected folder for anybody who's interested in them. In in reversing Hermon, I really focus on Monachem and Duran's article. Uh, they 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 reference Olson because Olson's was written, you know, 1997. Theirs is 2012. So they interact with it. So I don't I don't really bother in in the book anyway getting into the the first one. But we're going to say a few things, you know, here, uh, drawn a little bit more from Duran or excuse me from Olson, so that you get the flavor for what he's arguing. But I'm still going to use, you know, Monacom and Duran to to do that. Again, you can you can access both of these articles uh, in in the protected folder if, if you want to. So they take note. Monacom and Duran take note of Olson's work, obviously, as I just noted, and they write this. They, they, this is one point where they sort of summarize some, some things. Olson argues that the redeemed 144,000 virgins, Revelation 14:4a stand in radical opposition to the defiled fallen angels mentioned in 1 Enoch 1 through 36, who were engaged in sexual practices with the daughters of men, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. According to Olson, the 144,000 virgins of Revelation 14 are an anti-image to 
Not only the followers of the beast mentioned in the preceding chapter and Revelation 14 again, you know, 6 through 20, and of course we get the beast in Revelation 17 and 18, but also to the fallen angels of 1 Enoch 1 through 36. He also argues that by contrasting the redeemed with the watchers, John is actually giving the 144,000 the role of good angels, unquote. Again, that's very interesting, especially since we've already talked a little bit about angelic priesthood, both you know in, the, in, in some earlier episodes. If you've read Unseen Realm, you should be familiar with this idea. You know, we, we did an episode on Hebrews 12, the cloud of witnesses. I mean, we've, we've been on this topic before, this notion of angelic priesthood or believers you know, joining the council and so on and so forth. So this is actually part of that mix. You know, Olson, this is, this is one of the angles uh, that, that he pursues. Now, Monacam and Duran try to develop Olson's observation by more observations of the Watcher's tradition, and they expand the idea to argue that the 144,000 represent the entire people of God in the manner of the Old Testament idea of substitution. What they mean by that is that the, the whole firstborn thing, the Levites take the place of the firstborn offering of everything else. This is Numbers 3, 40, and 41. Okay, so that, you know, God is owed the firstborn, and the, 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 Le- the tribe of Levi sort of has this function uh, in the Old Testament. So he's drawing on that as well. And it, it's, this is actually alluded to in Revelation 14. Uh, they had, these have been redeemed from mankind as first mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Okay, so this, this notion of substitution, Allah, again, the firstborn, is actually mentioned in the passage. So Monachem and Duran are going to pursue that idea and, and you know, some of few other things from the Book of the Watchers to, to sort of build out Olson's argument. Now, for our purposes, really only the, the Watchers tradition is of interest, and we have to limit this somehow for this episode so we can get through Revelation 7. The other aspect, you know, the firstborn, you know, we're not going to do so much with that. But, you know, I, I, I think Olson, I think this is a meaningful trajectory. I don't think he, his, his idea should be dismissed. I think this is, you know, part of it. But in general, how do Manicam and Duran you know, with Olson, because they're, they're on the same side too. How do they make these points? The idea that the 144,000 are a mirror opposition to the fallen watchers. So I'm going to just walk you through their arguments here. So what they do first is they go through some passages where Levites and angels do similar things, just general ministries. They look at different vocabulary for what angels do and then what Levites do and note, hey, the same Hebrew lemma is used here. Okay, that, that sort of thing. So they write this. The Levites were, to a certain degree, God's holy ministering servants on earth as compared to angels being God's heavenly servants. Let me just stop there. If you're already thinking of, again, this notion of how believers are going to be grafted into the council, you know, and and essentially replace what has been lost through rebellion in heaven, again, this is all part of the complex. That, that matrix of ideas. So th- what, they're, what they're suggesting here should be familiar to people in this audience who have, you know, are familiar with the content of Unseen Realm and have been listening to the podcast for a while. So, so this is their beginning point, this simple observation. The Levites were to a certain degree God's holy ministering servants on earth as compared to angels being God's heavenly servants. Okay, this is also the concept of imaging. Why there's plurals in Genesis 1. Again, this is, this is all Unseen Realm content, how... how that the plurality language in that passage somehow links God with humans, with 
the, the heavenly host to whom God is speaking. And again, it's not the Trinity. We, you know, I'm not going to rehearse all that material here. But it, it, it basically sets up this, this relationship between us, we are God's imagers here in, this, you know, in, in the earthly sphere he has created for human habitation, and they are God's imagers in the spiritual world. Again, simple idea, very straightforward. So they reference here Hebrews 1.14, Numbers 3, 5 through 9, Numbers 8.11, Deuteronomy 18.5, okay. They give, an, they give a number of examples, but here's one. For example, both the angels and Levites were engaged in the worship of God. That's a pretty easy, straightforward example. Hebrews 1.6, Revelation 4.5, Deuteronomy 18.5. Now, they, 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 move pretty, they move away from this pretty quickly. So as an editorial note here, just on my own, I actually think this part of their argument is, is weak and could be a lot stronger. And I think it needs to be because it's, it's fairly central to where they're going to go. So I would suggest they need to strengthen this by working through the second temple material related to the idea of humans as the angelic priesthood. Again, Qumran is the example that the Qumran community clearly saw themselves this way. And in the absence of a literal temple, they mime temple service out there in the desert. They're effectively casting themselves as the quote-unquote real Levites, okay, the, we're the real priests here, that kept heaven and earth in sync. Again, all you got to do is read anything on Qumran calendar, the whole disagreement, you know, over that issue, why they separate from the fair, you know, the, the Jerusalem priesthood. I mean, there's a lot more they could do with this, but they don't. So it's, it's kind of disappointing, but it's still a legit, legit, legitimate point. If you want a, a quick article on that, again, I've referenced this before in, in earlier episodes, Devorah DeMont, Men as Angels, the Self-Image of the Qumran Community. And that's from the book Religion and Politics in the Ancient Near East, Studies in Jewish History and Culture. It's a 1996 book. So she has a chapter in that. It, it's, it, it's quite good. Secondly, here's the second trajectory they follow. So the first thing they say is, hey, there, there's, there's this service relationship. Second, the watchers forsook their heavenly standing by defiling themselves with earthly women. In other words, they transgress both the boundary between them and humanity, and in so doing, they despised the identity given to them by God. They thus no longer represent the holy ones of heaven. The opposite of this, in, in, again, in this argument, is the virginity. They have, quote-unquote, not defiled themselves with women, unquote, the opposite of this is the virginity of the 144,000 and their election to represent believers, or if one prefers, you know, Jewish believers. That goes back to part one, you know, that whole argument. Number three, the Levitical instructions about who priests should marry, that's Leviticus 21, contains language similar to that of Revelation 14 in regard to the 144,000. So yes, priests could marry. They're not, you know, virgins, but nevertheless, Nevertheless, we get instructions about who priests should marry and who they shouldn't. This is Leviticus 21, 14, and 15. A widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, these he, the priest, shall not marry. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. Okay, that's one of the Levitical rules, you know, for who priests should marry. So they're, they're correct here. There is some of this... Some of this language is picked up on, or at least there's, there's an echo, here in Revelation 14. Now, this description, again, this, this not defile themselves among women or with women, this description, it is argued by Monacom and Durand and Olson, is how first Enoch views what the watchers did. And, and here's, here's what they think is a direct connection. 
So I'm going to read First Enoch 15, 1 through 9. So this is how the, the writer of First Enoch views what the Watchers did. And you're going to see that, that there are thematically, and, and you know, in terms of if we compared the lemmas here with LXX of you know, Leviticus and, and Revelation, you're, you're going to get some hits. You're going to get some matches here. But just conceptually, here's how the writer of First Enoch viewed the offense. First Enoch 15, verse 1. And he answered and said to me, and I heard his voice, Fear not, Enoch, thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness, approach hither and hear my voice. And go, say to the watchers of heaven, who have sent thee to intercede for them. Remember, the watchers try to get Enoch to be a negotiator with God. Okay, let, let, let us get out of the chains and the abyss and all that stuff. Okay, So go, say to the watchers of heaven, who have sent thee to intercede for them, you should intercede for men and not men for you. Wherefore have ye left the high, holy, and eternal heaven, and lain with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men, and taken to yourselves wives, and done like the children of earth, and begotten giants as your sons? And though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women, and have begotten children with the blood of flesh." And as the children of men have lusted after flesh and blood, or th- as those also do who die and perish. In other words, you're behaving like mortals. Verse 5, Therefore have I given them wives also that they might impregnate them and beget children by them, that thus nothing might be wanting to them on the earth. There's God says, this is why I let humans do this, because they, like, they need to perpetuate the species. All right. Verse 6, But you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore I have not appointed wives for you, for as the spiritual ones of the heaven, in heaven is their dwelling. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits of flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they were born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth, and evil spirits shall they be called. That's the end of the passage. It's very clear, you know, origin of evil spirits, demons from, from this event. And it, it, this is one of the more explicit passages. So consequently, the argument is, when you hit Revelation 14.4, and you read, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, that that, that language is meant to be a mirror opposite of what the Watchers did. So the 144,000 are the other side of the watcher's coin. Fourth, fourth trajectory that that is used here. Since the 144,000 are seen in Revelation 14 in the heavenly temple, and they are opposite the watchers in terms of purity and faithfulness, they also symbolically replace the watchers. Hence, Monacam and Duran's summary of Olson, quote, John is actually giving the 144,000 the role of the good angels, unquote. You know, this, of course, also dovetails with the broader idea that believers replace the fallen council members, which is, that's wider than Genesis 6, but obviously this would play a, a big part of that. Now, as I noted in Reversing Hermon, that book, quote, the theological point is that the 144,000 holy ones who fight the beast, the Antichrist, are counterparts to the holy ones who rebelled and defiled themselves with women. John telegraphs that these holy ones will help their earthly compatriots defeat the beast and rectify the impurity brought to earth by the watchers. Again, I I think there is something to this approach, uh, but I'd like to see more 
thorough research done in defense of it. In other words, I, I like the content of Olson and, and Monica and Duran's articles, but they're just, there are parts of the argument that need development and I think could get further development. So this is sort of a dissertation topic, really. Um, I'd like to see more thorough research into Revelation 7 and 14 with the Septuagint vocabulary, for instance, about the priests. You know, aligning that, plus or minus, you know, with the Greek Enoch vocabulary. And then I'd like to see a thorough investigation of angelic priesthood texts. You know, th- there are just things that they could do, I think, to make, to, 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 to add support, you know, to bolster this argument, this trajectory. But, but right now where I sit, you know, looking at, at the work that exists on this point, I think there's something to it. I do think there's something to it. It, it, it. Let's put it this way. This has pretty good explanatory power. It's better than, oh, this is like warriors in Israel who, who didn't have sex before going out to battle. That's actually quite weak. This is better. Doesn't mean it's the right, you know, answer. So it, it's just better. It has more explanatory power, and I'd like to just see more done with it. Let's go on to number two, Antichrist and Dan. You know, and, and again, this is this is quite debatable. You know, in, in again, in reversing Hermon, uh, I'm just going to read you some some parts of reversing Hermon, so we get into the subject. Uh, I, I take a, a sort of a less positive view of this in that book, and again, I have to be cagey here because I'm actually going to use this idea uh, in its association with some other things in in the third novel. But anyway, from reversing Hermon, I wrote this: Dan had a checkered history. The tribe forsook its allotted inheritance in the south of Canaan and migrated north, appropriating the priest of Micah the Levite, who kept household gods and an idol in his house. That's Joshua 19, 40-48 and Judges 18. The Danites eventually conquered the city of Laish and renamed it Dan, Judges 18, 27, and 29, and this city became a cult center to Baal in later Israelite history. Earlier in Israel's history, instead of receiving a blessing from the dying Jacob like his brothers, the patriarch pronounced instead, quote, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards, unquote. Thanks for the blessing, Dad. You know, <laughs> that's not really a blessing. It's Genesis 49:17. Uh, to continue with what I wrote, Deuteronomy 33:22 contains the cryptic note that, quote, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan, unquote. And there's Bashan again, the, the creepy place. Now, these failures and passages associate Dan with rebellion against God, the region of Bashan, whose name in Canaanite would have been Bathon, serpent, and Baal worship at a location at the foot of Mount Hermon. Yes, there's a lot going on there, all right? Back to what I wrote here. It is no wonder that some early church writers believed that the reason Dan was omitted from Revelation 7 was because the Antichrist, in other words, the enemy of the 144,000, would come from the tribe of Dan. That was That's a belief you'll find in early church writings. And then I quote C.E. Hill, who has a, a journal article that's a study of this idea, this tradition. He writes this, Our first explicit mention of a Jewish antichrist comes in the writings of Irenaeus, where it occurs already in tandem with the opinion that he will also spring from the tribe of Dan. This is his Against Heresies 5.30.2. Somewhat surprisingly, Irenaeus brings forth but two scriptural passages in support of Antichrist's Danite origin. The first is Jeremiah 8.16 in the Septuagint, which in, in English translation is, We shall hear the voice of his swift horses, 
from Dan. The whole earth shall be moved by the voice of the neighing of his galloping horses. He shall also come and devour the earth and the fullness thereof, the city also, and they that dwell therein, unquote. Continuing with Hill, he, Irenaeus, finds further support for this in the omission of Dan from the list of the twelve tribes of the sealed in Revelation 7, 5 through 7. Little ellipsis here, Antichrist from the tribe of Dan makes his first known appearance in Irenaeus, but it is in Hippolytus that he finds his most scrupulous and eloquent biographer. Hippolytus's copious description proceeds on the principle that, quote, the deceiver seeks to liken himself in all things to the Son of God, unquote. As Jesus was the lion from the tribe of Judah, referring to Jacob's blessing on Judah in Genesis 49:17, Antichrist will be the lion from the tribe of Dan, referring to Moses' blessing, or his words at least, on the tribe of Dan in Deuteronomy 33:22. So that's the, the end of the hill quotation. Now, the difficulty with these ideas is that the Antichrist figure elsewhere okay, is pretty clearly Gentile. Ah, isn't that interesting? And here, again, I have to be a little cagey. All I'm going to say, in, in reversing Hermon, I brought up this point. So look, the Antichrist elsewhere is a Gentile. And of course, evangelicals assume that Antichrist means some sort of fake counterfeit Jesus, and they, so they opt for a Jew. But the Antichrist idea of the New Testament generates from, again, two Old Testament sources or ideas. The first is the, the Messiah must surely have a final day of the Lord enemy. In other words, that's not a counterfeit Messiah, but, but an enemy, an oppositional figure. Okay, a, a, a supernaturally empowered warrior or a divine warrior that aligns himself against the divine warrior that is the Messiah. And therefore, it would make sense for a Gentile to be opposed to a Jewish Messiah. So that's one trajectory in the Old Testament. The second is that Daniel 9 and 11 get repurposed in the New Testament. If Daniel is accurate in historical terms in these chapters, the eschatological enemy of the people of God in that material was Antiochus IV, who was a Gentile. Okay, so this is, this is what casts the Antichrist firmly in New Testament scholarship as a Gentile. Now let's go back here. You know, we've got all that. And again, we, we sort of operate with this assumption. Again, the difficulty of these ideas, the Antichrist figures elsewhere is pretty clearly a Gentile. Okay, here's the question. And I'm not going to get into it here because this is, this would be a whole episode, maybe two episodes. And again, it's, it's a trajectory for my third novel. What if Dan was not an Israelite tribe? That would make Dan Gentile, wouldn't it? There's a historical problem with Dan and the Danite migration in Joshua and the book of Judges. And it goes like this. Again, this is very short form. And there are ways that, that you, could, you could acknowledge what I'm going to say here and still have Dan be an Israelite tribe. It would be and not be. In other words, there, there's one of the explanations for what I'm going to share with you here is, is that um, – the original Jewish tribe of Dan in the south was either conquered or, or willingly assimilated people known as the Denyen or the Dan, Danunai or the Dan, you know, boy, there's, a, there's a different, there's, a, there's like three or four different spellings of this here. So the Denyen, the Danu Naoi, the Danu, okay, Danunen, I mean, again, there's a bunch of different spellings. Those are, it's a sea people tribe. It's a Gentile tribe from specifically the Aegean and even more specifically Mycenae. Now, if you've read my second novel, Mycenae should just make, you know, the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up, okay? So there's this whole issue of, 
you know, Dan, why is Dan referenced later in the prophets? You know, Dan, why did he stay in the ships, you know, at a, at a certain, you know, battle? Why didn't, why didn't he fight against, you know, certain peoples in the promised land that were also sea peoples? Well, maybe it's because Dan was essentially a sea people tribe, or maybe it's because Dan was a seafaring tribe because that's what the sea people, you know, you see all these things. This is, this is again, one of these little subset issues in, in Old Testament scholarship. It doesn't mean that there weren't 12 original tribes, including an original Jewish Dan tribe. But what it does mean is that Dan has problems, <laughs> okay? Dan could very well be conceived of as a group of sea peoples, predominantly, that usurp this tribe's position, migrate north, and do Gentile stuff, and basically become a problem, historically, theologically, religiously. And if that's the case, a, a Jew wouldn't have sort of been startled had you, if you ha- would have suggested that the Antichrist might come from Dan, and, and it works with Gentile typologies. That's a possibility. That's all I'm going to say here, Okay. So the, the Danite problem, the Danite migration problem is an issue that might work, might contribute to a, a Dan Antichrist typology. Now, I don't, I don't discuss this in reversing Hermon. You know, I, I, again, that would have been like adding, you know, 100 pages to, to the book. And I, I just, I couldn't do that at the point, at that point. But you're going to see this again, okay? It, it. Again, if you read my fiction, that's where I get to play with it a little bit. But I'm telling you here because we should not dismiss the Danite Antichrist thing. And let's let's just just say it more broadly. The great eschatological enemy thing, okay? (laughs) The the opponent of of the eschatological Messiah and his people being a Gentile, Dan might be part of that picture. It, It might be part of that typology. We should not exclude exclude that or dismiss it if we're committed to this great eschatological enemy being a Gentile. I think that's fairly obvious, okay, that he's not a Jew, but that doesn't exclude the Dan thing. Okay, enough said there. So, you know, it, it, it's difficult to, um, you know, to, to really say too much more about that, but that is the Dan Antichrist trajectory. And one of the prongs of it, one of the one of the things that propels it, it's probably a better way to say it, is the omission of Dan in, you know, the, the 144,000 list. Now you might recall from the first um, the first episode of part one here that that's not the only omission. You know, who else is omitted? Okay, usually, you know, think of the twelve, the original twelve. Okay, you know, Dan included, and and Joseph. Okay, those are the 12 sons of Israel. Usually when Joseph is not included, you know, in, in the tribal, you know, lists, what do you get? We get his two boys, his two sons, half-tribe of you know, Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, guess which other, you know, other than Joseph, you know, he's, he doesn't show up in a lot of tribal lists anyway. But his usual stand-ins, Ephraim and Manasseh. Also, do you know, there's an issue there. Guess which one of those is not in Revelation 7's list? Ephraim. Okay, why would that be significant? Well, because Ephraim was the capital of the apostate northern kingdom. Okay, and, and Ephraim, in Ephraim's territory, you know, the, the whole of it, 
Bashan is included in Dan. Dan to Beersheba. Dan is in the north. Okay. So Ephraim's not there either. <laughs> so again, this is one of those things where there, there could be something to this and we shouldn't dismiss it because of the Gentile part of the typology. So that it, it, to me, it really hinges on whether, whether there's a Danite problem and, and how the Danite problem worked, which is probably an unanswerable question. Um, you know, how, what exactly happened here? But if, if something happened to make the other tribes suspicious of Dan and that something at least included somewhat, something of a Gentile composition in their, in their people, okay, in the tribe, the, the tribe gets polluted, we'll just say it, you know, with, with Gentiles, okay, there's this, if that's the case, then that's on the table. It's, it's on the table, you know, when it comes to this other, other material. So let's move on. Again, there's there's a lot you can run around and do research on the, on the Danite problem. Like I said, it's complicated, lots of facets to it, a number of different ways to address it. But that's the subject for one or two other episodes, and I don't know that we'll ever do that. But again, you will see it in the novel, number three. Third, let's just move on and mop up the chapter here. Revelation 7, 13, and 14. There's one other thing I want to get into here, and that is the phrase, great tribulation. Okay, so let's go to Revelation 7, 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Okay, that's Revelation 7, 13 and 14. Now, I want to just say a few things about this phrase because as soon as you say great tribulation, that phrase is going to be interpreted. It's going to be parsed in certain ways by certain end times systems. Okay. And we've already talked about the old Testament. We already talked, I should say about the old Testament context for the white robe imagery. Again, that in the, in the verses I just read, we're not, not going to go back and rehearse all that, but I want to focus on, on this phrase. That's all we're going to do the rest of the episode. It does have an old Testament context and it's not what many in the audience might presume. The usual idea is great tribulation equals the 70th week of Daniel. But the concept of a seven-year tribulation never appears in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Okay, when you get the, the 70th week talk. The closest you come is Daniel 9, 25 in that mix. Let me just read this to you. Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So the troubled time is, is again, a possible reference vocabulary associated with a, a tribulation period. But if you'll notice, this stuff happens. It'll be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. This stuff would happen during the, somewhere during the, the first 69 weeks. It's not the 70th week. Okay, the, this, the, the anointed one rises and you have this building going on in a troubled time. And then it's only later that the anointed one gets cut off and so on and so forth. So it, it, it's not a match. A lot of people think it is, but it's not if you actually look closely at what it's saying. So that's one problem. The other problem is the vocabulary for tribulation never occurs with the terminology for week or seven in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. 
So the assumption that the Great Tribulation is the 70th week of Daniel, or the last seven of Daniel, there's actually no textual support for that. Now that doesn't mean it, it can't be. It, it means there's no textual support for it. There is, though, a better Old Testament context for the quote-unquote Great Tribulation language. And that is Daniel 12.1. I'm going to read Revelation 7, 13, and 14 again, just so that you have that ringing in your head. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So let's take a look at the elements. Okay, we, we have Revelation 17, 13, 14. We just read that. It references a great tribulation. You're also going to get this language in the New Testament in Matthew 24, 21. Let me just read that for you. We might as well read that. Uh, again, this is an eschatological passage, part of the Olivet Discourse here. Pray that your fight, this is verse 20, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then, verse 21, there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So like, this is the ultimate you know, tribulation, okay? So you have this language in Revelation 7, 13, and 14, Matthew 24, 21. You have believers and martyrs on behalf of the Lamb who have gone through the great tribulation. That's Revelation 7. Okay, these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. They've gone through the great tribulation. They're glorified because they have white robes. Their faith in the Lamb has saved them despite the Great Tribulation. Now, if the Tribulation is at a close in Revelation 7, and basically all eschatological views are going to say that, then we're at the final day of the Lord judgment, which includes the Great White Throne, the Book of Life, and all that sort of stuff, because we got this glorification element and so on and so forth. Now, the context, Old Testament context. Here's Daniel 12.1. Just listen to Daniel 12.1 in light of Revelation 17, 7, 13, and 14, and then Matthew 24.21. Here's Daniel 12.1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Okay. Again, look at the elements and their overlap with Revelation 7, 13, and 14, and Matthew 24, 21. You have an end of days tribulation. There's no number assigned to it. doesn't say it's seven years. doesn't say it's anything. It's just, it's, it, it's tribulation. And it's great because of the wording. Quote, this tribulation is such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. And because that of that wording, scholars will link Daniel 12, 1 to another Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. I'll read that. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, i.e. Israel, yet he shall be saved out of it. Now, this is the, this is the passage where you get the phrase, time of Jacob's trouble which, again, certain end-time systems will marry to the seven-year Great Tribulation and consider that the 70th week of Daniel. Again, there's certainly a connection there, but there's no number in any of these passages, and there's no association with the weeks of Daniel. Again, that, that, that's, that's a problem for specific systems, all right? But you have an end-of-days tribulation, 
And it's great, again, because that's the way it's worded. There's like this, never have seen anything like this. It never will be again. Second element, the righteous are delivered, the people of God, whose names are found written in the book. Okay, I think this is obviously the book of life. On here, uh, to loop him in, he writes, part of a series of events associated with the, the arrival of the eschaton in early Judaism and early Christianity is in view here. I mean, this language in Revelation 7, 13, and 14 gets picked up in, in Second Temple Jewish literature. Okay, I say picked up because I, we, you know, scholars think its source is Daniel 12, and Jeremiah 30, and so on and so forth. For instance, you get Testament of Moses 8.1, Jubilees 23.11 through 21, 4th Ezra 13.16 and 19, the second apocalypse of, of Baruch. 27, 1 through 15. There, there are other, you know, again, Jewish texts in the Second Temple period that pick up on these passages and talk about them in kind of the same ways that you're, you're also going to see in Revelation 7, 13, and 14. So even ancient people associated this language from Daniel 12, 1 and Jeremiah 37, you know, with the, the, the apocalypse. And of course, Revelation is an apocalypse and so on and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of agreement here in, in terms of the, the ancient literature. Where there's disagreement is how modern end, end times systems, what they do with this and, and sort of information that gets added along the way. Now, On also writes this, since the Danielic phrase, time of distress, okay, this, this time of trouble, was interpreted as the time of the battle against the Kittim, that means Westerners, in, first, in 1QM, that's the war scroll. Uh, 1, 11 and 12, and, and chapter 15, verse 1. Since that's true, Bauckham suggests that the phrase, quote, those who emerge from the great tribulation here in Revelation 7, 13 and 14, means, quote, those who emerge victorious from the eschatological war, okay, unquote. On continues and says, it appears that while the great tribulation belonged to a discrete series of events in Jewish eschatological expectation, Early Christians regarded their frequent experience of persecution and opposition as part of this eschatological period of tribulation presaging the end. And preterists like that because that, that's essentially the preterist argument, you know, at least in terms of the flavor of it. Now, Beale, and who's not a preterist, but you know, Beale is going to express these ideas this way. He says, Daniel 12.1 is acknowledged as the likely origin for the idea of the Great Tribulation. Quote, there will be a time of tribulation, such tribulation as has not come about from when a nation was on earth until that time. That Daniel is in mind is also apparent from the fact that the phrase great tribulation occurs in the New Testament outside Revelation only in Matthew 24, 21, where it is part of a fuller and more explicit reference to Daniel 12, 1. He references Mark 13, 19. He also references the war scroll, so on and so forth um, for these ideas. There, these are prophecies that God will protect the Israelite saints as they pass through the imminent, unprecedented time of distress prophesied in Daniel 12.1, after which they will be rewarded with eternal blessing. In Daniel's tribulation, the eschatological opponent persecutes the saints because of their covenant loyalty to God. That's Daniel 11.30-39, verse 44, and also Daniel 12.10. Some will apostatize and persecute those remaining loyal, especially attempting to cause them to forsake their loyalty. Therefore, the tribulation consists of pressures to compromise the faith, these pressures coming both from within the church community through seductive teaching and from without through overt oppression. Sometimes the persecution is economically oriented. So you have philipsis, the word tribulation in Revelation 2.9, to afflict. 
you get the same thing in Leviticus 26, 26 in the Septuagint, where it refers to a famine of bread and distributing loaves by weight, which stands partly behind, in Beale's mind, Revelation 6, 5 through 6. At other times, the tribulation is heightened to include imprisonment and even death, Revelation 2.10, Thalipsis, tribulation. Whatever its nature, tribulation always comes because of believers' faithful witness to Jesus. The greatness of the tribulation, therefore, and again, in Beale's thinking, is the intensity of the seduction and the intensity of the oppression through which believers pass. Now, another, another you know, item here. If Revelation 3.10 is an allusion to Daniel 12.1. Let's read Revelation 3.10. We'll go back there. We've hit this before. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So if that's, a, if that's an allusion to Daniel 12.1, which would then be connected to Revelation 7.13 and 14, then one could argue, now catch this, one could argue that the Great Tribulation is yet another already but not yet element in biblical thought. Because Revelation 3 is addressed to the churches that are already boots on the ground. Okay, if Revelation 3.10 refers to Daniel 12.1, the writer sees this happening already, but then you're going to get these later passages where it's not yet. It, it's, it's still something prospective. So the tribulation itself, this, this great end times tribulation, whatever it is, again, that People assume is the 70th week of Daniel, even though there's no textual support for that. Whatever that is, could be an already but not yet thing in the, in the mind of the writer of Revelation. And that's actually Beale's position. Here's what he writes, just before we wrap up here. Indeed, the author of 1 Maccabees 9.27 understood that the great tribulation of Daniel 12.1 had already begun in the second century BC. As a result of the chaos produced by Judah's Judas's death at the hands of Israel's enemy. This is Judas Maccabee. He writes, so there was, this is the writer of Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 9.27. So there was a great tribulation, Thalipsis Megalae in Israel, like the like of which had not occurred since the time that a prophet was not seen among them, unquote. Midrash of Psalm 119.31 applies Daniel 12.10 tribulation prophecy to the afflictions of Israel throughout history. Okay, so, you know, on and on and on, he, he lists a few other examples here. And he writes, we have seen that the hour of testing in Revelation 3.10 also alludes to Daniel 12.1 and Daniel 12.10. So he thinks they are connected. And that it appears to include the entire time before Jesus' ministry and the parousia and the second coming. If so, the present analysis of the tribulation in Revelation 7.14 is supported further, though others also see a parallel between 3.10 and 7.14 but see both as a losing to something in the future, a final trial, the very end of history. So what Beale is arguing is that could be already, but not yet. And again, that's where he lands because, you know, Maccabees picks up the, the language and some other sources already. Again, the people of God are under oppression all the way, a couple centuries BC, all the way through the first century when John is writing the book of Revelation. It's already, but it's not yet. It's, it's already happening. Believers are under oppression but not yet. The end, the ultimate consummation of this persecution, this tribulation has yet to come. So at the very least, let's just wrap up this way. At the very least, here's what can be said about the great tribulation of Revelation 7, 13 and 14 in biblical thought. Number one, it's certainly connected to Daniel 12, 1 and Jeremiah 37. I don't think there's any way to deny that. Number two, it's therefore linked to Matthew 24, 21. Number three, it is a time that precedes the final judgment 
and return of Jesus. Remember the white robes, okay, the book of life. So it's a time that precedes that, and it involves persecution of believers. That's number four. That's about what you can say about the great tribulation for sure. Notice there's no reference to weeks. There's no time. There's no number of years. All of that kind of stuff is supplied or kept from being part of the, the equation by whatever your, your end time system happens to be. So we, we, again, we, we shouldn't be making assumptions that the Great Tribulation is the 70th week of Daniel. Hey, maybe that's the way it'll turn out. Who knows, okay? But there, there isn't a verse to hang that on, is the point. Rather, it might be this already but not yet thing, again, which wouldn't necessarily exclude the former. But again, it'd be sure nice to have a verse for that, for that, for the, that numerical equation, but we don't have it. So again, you know, ultimately, this is what you're left with. This is why we have different end time systems. This is why if, you're, if you love one and, and you need this element in it for it to work, you're going to cheat. You're, 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 you know, you're just going to say it and, and, that, and that works. And now we, we move on to the next point. If you don't like, you know, that eschatological system, you're going to say there's, there's not even room for discussing this. Forget it, blah, 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 blah. You're going you're gonna to dismiss it from the realm of possibility just out of the gate. It's, it's a non-discussion item. And so there you go. You know, this, this is how systems work. The, both sides are going to do this at different points to, to make their system beautiful. And they're all beautiful, except where they're not. Okay, they're all beautiful until something messes with them. Which is why in this series, we're not propping up an end times system. Okay, I just want you to be thinking about Old Testament antecedents to these ideas, to the content here of Revelation 7 here in part two. So Again, possible connection, again, to Genesis 6, i.e. The, the Book of the Watchers stuff, the way that's worded, the way that was taken in Second Temp- Temple Judaism, the way that was understood. And you've got the, the, the Danite problem, the great eschatological enemy. Does, it have a relation, does he have a relationship to Dan? Okay, that, that's, again, there, there, there's data there for that, but again, we, we don't necessarily know for sure. And then third, the Great Tribulation. You know, all these things have Old Testament precedent antecedents. And that's what we're trying to do in this in this uh, this series of the podcast. Just introduce you to these things, so that you can think about them when you're studying, in this case, the Book of Revelation. Mike, we want hard core answers here. We want to know the facts. We want to know exactly which one. You want har- don't. You want hardcore speculation? Yeah, we want <laughs> to pinpoint it down hey, to the- one. We'll give us a bunch of them. We won't the right. That's what one. the novel's for. <laughs> Hardcore speculation. That was my next thing. You were you mentioned that. So uh, what's up with that? Can we expect that uh, sometime soon? Well, soon is a relative term, Trey. Mm, I mean, it, it'd be nice to it'd be nice to hand this off to to my my little circle of of draft readers you know, who who you know helped me with the first two. You know, by the end of the year, that that would be wonderful. Um, so. I don't know if anyone defines soon as early next year or not. You know, I, no. I think I, that's that's probably the that's probably the best timetable I can give you. But anyway, okay. that's, that's but, where but we're definitely at. Definitely twenty twenty two is what you're saying. Oh, I, yeah. I, oh, I would think so. Absolutely. Okay, so yeah. you're guaranteed right now. You're you're willing to go on the record that twenty twenty two is guaranteed. I'm going to go out on that limb. Yes, Ooh, sometime right. in twenty twenty. December thirty first, January. Breaking <laughs> news. You heard it here first. Twenty twenty two guaranteed yeah. all right in time for christmas 2022 there you go all right well that's good stuff uh mike also wanted to mention uh to people out there that um 
you know, we are going to do a Q&A of Revelation. So start gathering your questions. Uh, if you have some, you can go ahead and send those to me at tracestrickland at gmail.com. In the subject, if you would, just please put Revelation Q&A or something so I can keep those together. But, uh, uh, you know, or if you want to wait. No questions get about Dan. To the no end. questions about Dan. And no <laughs> questions about ducks either. Okay. Uh, hey, why not? <laughs> You're going to have to give us an update on the War of the Ducks. That's right. Our apocalyptic war against these two ducks. Exactly. All right. That's it, Mike. And with that, uh, uh, I think uh, next week we're we're going to be doing a Q&A. So we'll be looking forward to Q&A next week. And with that, I want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.